in a time of plague that's off his latest album which proceeds of which will go towards uh covid19 relief groups greetings and welcome to bernie 2020 this is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by bernie sanders progressive and radical activism and the green party this podcast is completely independent of any candidate party pack or political organization can uh, check out all the back episodes at the website bernie-2020.com and in addition to all the back episodes you'll find links there to make a donation you can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast going you can also follow me on twitter at bernieus2020 first up is a story written by Yoan higgins published at truthout.org Senator Bernie Sanders on Friday released his demands for six key priorities that he said must be included in the next round of federal economic relief for suffering Americans as the coronavirus pandemic cripples the country's health care system and eviscerates the economy. Quote, we are in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic that could lead to the death of hundreds of thousands of Americans and infect millions of others. And we are entering an economic downturn that could be worse than the Great Depression of the 1930s, Sanders said. In this unprecedented moment in modern American history, it is imperative that we respond in an unprecedented way. According to the Vermont Lawmaker's Office, Sanders wants the next bill to include six provisions that are aimed at helping working people in the U.S. weather the crisis. Addressing the unemployment crisis by ensuring workers remain employed and paid, as well as providing social services for everyone in the country, regardless of citizenship or immigration status. Guaranteeing a free at-point-of-service Medicare-for-all single-payer health care system for everyone in the country. Immediately using the Defense Production Act to manufacture personal protective equipment ventilators, and other needed healthcare equipment for frontline workers dealing with the pandemic. Providing food for everyone in the country for the duration of the crisis. $600 billion in aid to states and cities. An immediate suspension of collections of rent, mortgage payments, medical debt, and consumer debt for four months and the suspension of student loan payments through the duration of the pandemic. 
In a video posted to social media, Sanders said the pandemic presents an outright emergency for the nation's most vulnerable populations and for all working people, and that drastic measures must be taken to protect people's health and economic well-being. Sanders, a candidate for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, who has since this article suspended his campaign, announced the priorities Friday afternoon. Campaign co-chair Nina Turner in a tweet cited the need for ambitious thinking. Quote, We are entering a downturn that could be worse than the Great Depression, said Turner. We must respond to this unprecedented challenge with the boldest measures. Sanders is outlining the most comprehensive set of priorities that will immediately provide relief and leave no one behind. The plan won praise from Anna Maria Archila, co-director of the Center for Popular Democracy Action. Quote, Bernie's plan for the fourth phase of a federal legislative response centers people, not corporations, said Archila. It is about helping us survive with the cash assistance, health care, nutrition, worker safety we need, and relief from monthly payments we cannot make. It speaks to the needs of frontline workers who are battling the pandemic and making it possible for the rest of us to shelter in place. Inclusion of the kind of provisions that Sanders is demanding in the next stimulus bill would make the package the boldest legislation in history, the Senator's office said. A number of progressive groups backed the Sanders plan, calling the forward-thinking ideas in the proposal necessary to stave off an economic disaster. Senator Sanders' economic rescue principles speak to the bold, fast action needed to protect and support people and prevent corporations from consolidating economic and political power amidst a crisis, said George Gohl, Director of People's Action. Make the Road Action co-director Javier H. Valdez made the case that Sanders is offering concrete, real help to Americans. Quote, the priorities outlined by San Senator Sanders for the next coronavirus stimulus package are what our country needs to ensure everyone in our community can access the financial and medical support needed to withstand this crisis, said Valdez. We stand with Senator Sanders in demanding $2,000 monthly emergency payment, emergency food, and Medicare to every person in our country, regardless of their housing situation, immigration status, or whether they have a bank account or internet connection. And next up is a piece by Bernie Sanders. This is published at Politico.com. Here's how to cover uninsured Americans during the pandemic. As the coronavirus continues to spread and the United States climbs closer to 1 million cases and nearly 60,000 deaths, both of those numbers have been surpassed since this article was written on April 28th. We face an unprecedented economic and healthcare crisis that demands an unprecedented response. While we work towards an economic solution that keeps people on the payroll, Washington is also in the midst of a crucial argument over how to help cover costs of testing, treatment, and all other essential care for the millions of people who are now uninsured or soon will be as the country faces record levels of job loss. This pandemic makes even more clear 
that we are all only as safe as the least insured in our country. Last week, the White House said it would give an unspecified amount of federal aid directly to hospitals to cover the costs of treating treating uninsured COVID-19 patients. But details have not been released, and the proposal leaves out all the non-COVID-19 but still crucial medical care. The week before, a handful of Democrats proposed spending hundreds of billions of dollars on expanding subsidies for COBRA, the program that allows those who have lost their jobs to continue on a temporary basis, paying out of pocket for the health insurance coverage they received from their previous employer. But there's another better way to guarantee that everyone in America gets all the health care they need without the cost for the duration of the pandemic. Empower Medicare to pay all of the health care costs for the uninsured, as well as all out-of-pocket expenses for those with existing public or private insurance, for as long as this pandemic continues. Our Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act is more comprehensive than Trump's vague proposal and less expensive than the Democrats' COBRA expansion. Let's be clear. Even before this crisis began, 87 million Americans were uninsured or underinsured, struggling to get a doctor when they needed to. Now the situation is much worse. There is no doubt that the health care crisis we are facing right now is an emergency. Already, an estimated 12.7 million workers have lost their employer-sponsored insurance, and as many as 35 million people might lose coverage by the end of the crisis. Meanwhile, the cost of hospital treatment for the coronavirus amounts to tens of thousands of dollars, and patients struggling with the disease are desperately worried that they cannot afford treatment or might go bankrupt if they get it. To make matters worse, some of the communities hit hardest by the coronavirus, such as the undocumented, largely do not have any health insurance coverage at all. Yet, unbelievably, in the midst of this horrific pandemic, Republicans in Congress have only continued their cruel and single-minded focus on repealing the Affordable Care Act. Further, Republican governors like Greg Abbott in Texas continue to fight against Medicaid expansion, leaving many of the most vulnerable people in their states desperate and sick. While almost all Democrats understand the severity of the crisis and the need to act, too many of them are proposing a totally inadequate response that would simply lock in place the dysfunction and waste of our current health care system. Subsidizing COBRA, as they have suggested, would be both expensive and ineffective. Not only would health insurance corporations make massive profits off the plan, profits that come at the cost of the American taxpayer, but it would still leave tens of millions uninsured or underinsured. And during this pandemic, a lack of insurance means more COVID-19 transmissions and more deaths. Expanding COBRA during the pandemic would do nothing to cover those who already lacked insurance. It also won't help the many Americans who continue to receive employer-provided health care, but are still prevented from going to the doctor by massive deductibles and co-pays. In fact, the average family with employer-provided insurance faces $4,700 in out-of-pocket costs every year. 
The deductible alone for the average low-income worker is $2,600 a year. Maintaining the status quo does nothing to address these extraordinary costs made worse during the pandemic economy. Further, COBRA subsidies will only cement the inequities of our current health insurance system right now. Right now, low-wage workers are on average enrolled in plans with low premiums but higher deductibles. On the other hand, higher-wage employees, often professionals, have platinum plans with much higher premiums and far superior coverage. Expanding COBRA, which subsidizes only premiums, would treat high-income workers who lose their jobs far better than low-wage workers who do, even though the latter have suffered the brunt of the economic damage wrought by the pandemic. The Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act would treat all people equally. For the duration of the crisis, under the Act, Medicare will cover all medically necessary health care, including prescription drugs for the uninsured, whether those who have recently lost their jobs or those who have been long without insurance. It is simply irresponsible and dangerous to the public to allow millions of people in this country to go without health coverage as a pandemic rips through our communities. Medicare, under our plan, would also temporarily cover the co-pays, deductibles, and other out-of-pocket costs for all medically necessary health care for those who are already insured. Here's how this simple and efficient plan would work. When people go to the hospital or doctor, they provide their insurance information. If they have insurance, their provider will bill Medicare for the out-of-pocket costs. If the individual is uninsured, the provider will bill Medicare for the entire cost of care. The patient will not be forced to pay any bills for their treatment. This proposal would prevent insurance companies from decreasing coverage and ban surprise billings so patients don't get unexpected charges later. It would also prevent price gouging by pharmaceutical companies by making sure the government pays the same lower price for prescription drugs as the Veterans Health Administration. Allowing Medicare to cover out-of-pocket health care expenses during the pandemic isn't just the right thing to do. It is actually less expensive for taxpayers, because unlike COBRA, the government would not be covering the cost of expensive monthly premiums to insurance corporations. The numbers make this clear. If 35 million Americans lose their employer-provided coverage, as estimated by Health Management Associates, Subsidizing premiums to health insurance corporations through COBRA would cost $157 billion over four months, or as much as $472 billion over a year. And even then, these figures don't include the outrageously high deductibles that many people would still have to pay. Meanwhile, the Conservative Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget estimates that allowing Medicare to cover out-of-pocket expenses for everyone would cost around $150 billion over four months, or only $400 billion over a year. In other words, the Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act provides comprehensive coverage to far more Americans while saving taxpayers money. The American people deserve a health care response to the pandemic that's simple, easy to understand, and doesn't require them to fill out complicated forms or deal with an already stressed bureaucracy in order to receive care. Under this proposal, 
everyone in the United States, regardless of insurance coverage or immigration status, will be able to walk into a doctor's office to receive the care they need without worrying about the cost. At a time when many American families are waiting hours in food lines and are often unable to afford groceries, whatever amount of money is left in their pocket must be saved for the basic needs of their families, not exorbitant health care bills. When so many of our people are struggling economically and are terrified by the possibility of becoming sick with the coronavirus, the government must take the burden of health care costs off the backs of working people. The Health Care Emergency Guarantee Act would do just that. And here is a piece written by Sean King, published at the Northstar.com. I would endorse and even campaign for Joe Biden if he did these five things. It looks like Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee for President of the United States. I say looks like because he hasn't won the nomination yet. And with the pandemic delaying primaries across the country, I'm not even sure he will ever get the delegates he needs to officially win it. And every single day I hear Democrats clamoring for somebody other than Biden to be the nominee. I would never vote for Donald Trump. I just want to get that out in the open. But casting my vote for Joe Biden while holding my nose and resenting a country that continues to force us to choose between the lesser of two evils is totally different than endorsing and campaigning for him. Here's what it would take for me to endorse and campaign for Joe Biden. One, he'd have to admit that he's the primary architect of modern-day mass incarceration, apologize for it, and commit to the most robust plan ever written to undo what he helped build. Joe Biden spent nearly 30 years not just crafting the infamous crime bill, which was named after him, but crafting dozens of bills and amendments all centered on exploding the system and structures of mass incarceration from mandatory minimums to the death penalty to rewarding states who followed his harsh lead. Number two, right now the minimum age for Medicare is 65 years old. I am a part of the movement that wants to take the minimum age to zero. That's all Medicare for All is, taking the minimum age down from 65 to zero. Bernie Sanders planned on doing it gradually over a period of four years. Last week, as if it was an olive branch, Joe Biden offered to lower it to 60 years old. That's not an olive branch. That's an insult. Hell, in 2016, mainstream Democrats were talking about lowering it to 55. The bottom line is the coronavirus pandemic has exposed how flawed it is that the United States is the only nation in the world that ties your health insurance to your job. It's dumb. And now that millions are out of work, they're out of health insurance. It's outrageous. Right now, Biden is not even in the right ballpark on health care, period. I need him to be in a wildly different place than he is right now on health care before I'd back him. Number three, 
if he doesn't want to simply adopt the environmental plan of Bernie Sanders, which he should do immediately, he should adopt the robust plan created by Washington Governor Jay Inslee. It was the original gold standard among presidential candidates. Elizabeth Warren adopted Inslee's plan as her own. Biden's plan to stop global warming and address the climate crisis was the worst of anybody running. Now that this global pandemic has exposed that the country can actually pay for whatever it cares to pay for, Biden can no longer use costs as an excuse for anything, particularly not saving the planet. Number four, I counted nearly 50 different times that Joe Biden blatantly lied about his involvement in the civil rights movement, from claiming he participated in sit-ins that he never participated in, some never even happened at all, to falsely claiming he was trained in black churches on Sunday mornings as a teenage boy, to falsely claiming he marched all over the place. He never marched at all. I need Joe Biden to acknowledge and apologize for this. What's wild is that in 1987, he did acknowledge and apologize for telling such lies. But over the past year, he started them back up again. Forgive me, but I'm stuck on this. It's a gross abuse of power, and he has refused to apologize for it. Number five. I need Joe Biden to nominate a true progressive as his vice president. Yes, I'd love for it to be a progressive woman of color. That would be the ideal scenario. But for me, it's more important that he appoint a truly committed progressive than anything else. Appointing a moderate or conservative woman or a person of color is nothing. You can be a woman or person of color and have horrible politics. We need somebody that actually energizes the progressive base on his ticket. Without it, Biden will struggle. Next up is a piece written by Harun, published at medium.com. I'm a Bernie bro, and I'm not voting blue no matter who. My name is Haroon, and I am one of the Bernie Sanders supporters on Twitter that you have called for Bernie to denounce. During the primary season, I've accused Pete Buttigieg of murdering my cousins in Afghanistan and of being an Apple Music user. I've accused Joe Biden of being an Islamophobe and of being cheap. And I photoshopped images of Mike Bloomberg calling me a terrorist. I've been called toxic and divisive, and I don't regret any of it. For months now, the manner in which Bernie supporters like me engage with the rest of the Democratic Party has been called into question more times than Pete Buttigieg's decision to, quote, carry an assault weapon around a foreign country and terrorize civilians in my parents' homeland. It has been called into question more than the Biden campaign's past appointment of an avowed supporter of anti-Muslim fascist Narendra Modi as Muslim outreach coordinator. And it has been called into question more times than Mike Bloomberg's police program surveilling Muslims in New York. If only establishment Democrats were as committed to having nuanced discussions about their history of disenfranchising my community 
and so many other communities, as they are, to holding me to the standards of civility Joe Biden held while proudly working alongside segregationists. If only they were as committed to incorporating the issues that matter to me into their platform as they are to dismissing me as a petulant loser for withholding my vote from Joe Biden, despite the fact that Bernie has endorsed him. Maybe then they could convince me, and so many like me, to join their coalition. The narrative surrounding Bernie supporters is a telling reflection of the immense influence establishment Democrats have on our political discourse. The fact is that over the last year, establishment Democrats have prioritized civility above all else. But how do establishment Democrats reconcile their concerns regarding civility with the fact that they are, they've ravaged our environment, separated families, and sent Americans to die in baseless wars? Is that the civility we should strive towards? Establishment Democrats are allowed to be uncivil in ways that have scarred individuals and communities alike. I should be allowed to be uncivil in the ways I hold them accountable. Establishment Democrats have spread the narrative of Bernie supporters being toxic, being entitled, being cult members, and engaging in a form of counterproductive zero-sum politics as a means of delegitimizing the validity of our criticisms of candidates like Joe Biden and their disastrous actions and policies. By focusing on civility, they silence critics while keeping their own problematic views, actions, and funding histories outside of public discourse. Given the substantial financial and operational advantages establishment Democrats have, it's quite astonishing that they haven't been better prepared for their campaign against us Bernie supporters. I guess that Donna Brazil's recommendation to hire McKinsey to identify dissenters and silence them must have gotten lost during the DNC's leadership shuffle. Perhaps they'll hire Buttigieg to do so as an independent consultant before November. The Democratic establishment, like the Republican establishment during the 2016 election, must now integrate new voices into the political discourse. For decades, they have failed to heed the warnings of academics that the democratization of media will spur greater political agency. With reduced barriers to entry, new media like Twitter offer the public ability to communicate directly with individuals in positions of power, critique actions and policies, organize like-minded individuals, and even create original content. New media was always expected to mobilize disenfranchised citizens in particular and facilitate their entrance into the political discourse. Now that it's happened, we're witnessing establishment Democrats in real time choose not to engage with the substance of the criticism they're receiving from those they've disenfranchised and instead focus on the manner in which the criticism is given. This is the essence of civility politics. Style, not substance. Call me crazy, but you don't get to disenfranchise individuals and then be upset when they're justifiably outraged. 
The manner in which establishment Democrats have behaved towards Bernie supporters during this primary season is indicative of the sense of apathy they have towards the people whose lives they've negatively impacted. And until establishment Democrats make amends and do better, I intend to cast stones, publicly shame, pile on, silence, and act in a manner that they may find in poor taste. I intend to hold my vote hostage, and I am certainly not alone. Why must we, the individuals they've inflicted pain upon, suffer the burden of remaining civil when they have long public record of infringing on civility? This is what establishment Democrats must come to terms with as they attempt to unite a fractured party behind Joe Biden. As uncomfortable as it may be, establishment Democrats must be willing to discuss why the party and the candidate they're asking us to trust to carry out change have long histories of persecuting the very people they claim to stand for. Establishment Democrats must be willing to shoulder our truth-telling even when it hurts their fragile egos. Establishment Democrats must concede that we're hurting, we're rightfully angry, and we want them to listen, to act, and to realize that building trust will take time. Not a single joint live stream in the announcement of a few task forces. Establishment Democrats' politics have been uncivil for decades. Our politics should be allowed to be the same. If they truly represent me and want me to support Joe Biden, they should welcome my criticism and understand that holding them accountable to the values they advocate, regardless of the tone in which I do so, is the greatest favor I can do them. Remember, it is not my job to vote for Joe Biden. It is Joe Biden's job to earn my vote. And he has not done that yet. And next up, a piece by David Serrata. Uh, and this is published at serrata.substack.com. If you've read the autopsies of the Bernie 2020 campaign in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Politico, BuzzFeed, or CNN, you've probably read a version of a story that goes something like this. Pollster Ben Tulchin, co-chair Nina Turner, and I were fire-breathing monsters aggressively pushing Bernie to attack Joe Biden. Bernie refused to do it, and that's why Bernie lost. There are some nuggets of truth in here, but also there's some fiction. And so it is worth separating the facts from the fantasy in order to understand a huge but little discussed problem plaguing the Democratic Party that I call the tyranny of decorum. Yes, it is true. A small group of us with many years of campaign experience pushed Bernie to sharply contrast his own progressive record with Biden's record of working with Republicans against the Democratic agenda. I've been on seven underdog challenger campaigns in my life and won a few of them. This is campaigning 101. You contrast or you lose. And with Biden, the contrast was particularly stark. 
While Bernie was fighting to stop the Iraq War, Biden helped the GOP pass the Iraq War resolution and vote down Democratic amendments to that resolution. While Bernie was fighting to stop the bankruptcy bill, Biden helped the GOP pass the legislation that could now crush hundreds of thousands of Americans during the coronavirus recession. While Bernie and Paul Wellstone were pushing a bill to lower the price of prescription drugs and prevent profiteering off vaccines developed at taxpayer expense, Biden was helping Republicans kill the initiative. And so, as I told MSNBC, while Bernie was fighting to protect and expand Social Security, Biden was helping echo the Republican argument for cutting Social Security. Even though Biden at times pathologically lied about some of these facts, and at one point he actually insisted he didn't help write his own bankruptcy bill, this record is verifiable. It is not in dispute. A group of us believed it was important for this record to be spotlighted because it was good strategy and good for democracy. We didn't push Bernie to, quote, attack Biden in some sort of vicious way. We pushed him to instead simply and very explicitly cast the primary as a choice between a vision of progressive change and Biden's promise to his donors that, quote, nothing will fundamentally change. To his credit, Bernie at times worked with us and embraced the strategy, and when he did, it was successful. See his Social Security contrast with Biden in Iowa, and see his contrast with Wine Cave Pete in New Hampshire. At other times, though, the campaign backed off and did not seize opportunities to explicitly and continually spell out big differences between the candidates. Ultimately, Biden was able to avoid having to constantly try to explain his offensive record. Instead, he was allowed to depict himself as a safe, electable, quote, unity candidate. Was it fun to always be one of the people pushing the campaign to be more aggressive and also eating shit on Twitter for supposedly being toxic? For simply tweeting a few videos of Biden pushing some grotesquely retrograde policy? No, it was not fun. I have more gray hair and less stomach lining because I pushed. I'm no hero or a martyr, but I can tell you it was awful, excruciating, and heartbreaking. But it was necessary. Would we have won had we consistently contrasted with Biden? If we're going to play shoulda, coulda, woulda, I'd love to say yes. However, I can't say that with total confidence because there are so many variables because Biden was an extremely powerful primary candidate, even if he may not have seemed like it to the average onlooker. Let's remember in the last 65 plus years, no current or immediate past vice president has ever mounted a serious run for president and not successfully secured his party's nomination at least once. That obscure stat evinces a core truth. If given the choice, voters of both parties almost always opt to nominate people who were a heartbeat away from the presidency. As a former vice president who once bragged about being one of the most conservative lawmakers in the Senate, Biden had the support of much of the corporate-aligned party establishment, as well as the billionaire class, that correctly saw Bernie as an unprecedented existential threat to their economic interests. 
That establishment may be weaker than ever, but it is still enormously powerful, especially because so much of the media often echoes its objectives. Some examples. CNN likened Bernie to coronavirus. MSNBC ran an all-out campaign against us. Self-described fact-checkers insidiously obscured the facts and deflected criticism of Biden's very clear record. And as Politico reported, quote, Biden enjoyed nearly $72 million in almost completely positive earned media in the pivotal days leading up to Super Tuesday. Maybe a sharper contrast could have overcome this. Maybe not. I'm not sure. I am confident, however, that a stronger contrast would have at least put us in a better position to survive when Beto, Klobuchar, and Wine Cave Pete all fell in behind Biden to help him seal Super Tuesday. In absence of a tough critique early on and with no day-to-day focus on his record, Biden was able to solidify an electability argument he didn't deserve or earn. According to exit polls, Biden was able to win the largest share of Democratic voters in 15 states who said health care was their top priority, even though a majority of Democratic voters in those states said they support replacing private insurance with a government-run plan, a position Biden opposes. Biden won Midwest states that have been ravaged by the trade deals that he himself supported. Biden even won the most Democratic voters in 11 states who said climate was their top issue, despite his far weaker climate plan. By the time our campaign was finally comfortable consistently making a strong case against him, it was after Super Tuesday, and it was too late. A thing that is dangerously untrue, contrasts are bad. If you've read this far, I know what you're wondering. What explains Bernie's resistance to more sharply contrasting with Biden? In my opinion, three things, with the third thing being the most problematic for the future. One, Bernie is a deeply principled lawmaker, but he is not a scorched-earth politician and never has been. Since he was first elected to a public office, his approach is one that seems defined by a belief that to make real change from the outside, you must push hard, but always maintain one foot inside the power structure and not try to burn it all the way down. The calculation is that if you are too adversarial against the establishment, you will be instantly marginalized, depicted as irrelevant, and disempowered. 2. As he himself said, Bernie likes and respects Biden. I personally don't believe that affinity is justified considering Biden's legislative record, but I'm not going to litigate that point. It is what it is. Number three, the Democratic Party has manufactured a culture that creates the conventional wisdom and perception that any efforts to contrast opponents' records from the left in a primary is negative and therefore destructive. That culture, of course, is a structural factor that lasts beyond the Bernie campaign, and it is a huge problem. It is a new tyranny of decorum that aims to convince voters to value etiquette, pleasantries, and party unity over everything else, even their own economic interests.
Let's remember we have just experienced modern history's first contested Democratic presidential primary, in which the candidates declined to seriously criticize each other in any kind of sustained way. There were certainly momentary flashpoints, but compared to past primaries, this was a muted affair. And if you somehow think this primary was uniquely negative because Bernie once in a while gently mentioned Joe Biden's vote for the Iraq War, then you are apparently Rip Van Winkle waking up from a 50-year slumber. You somehow never saw Democratic ads against Howard Dean in 2004. You never saw Hillary Clinton ads depicting Barack Obama as corrupt. You never heard Obama's ads and speech portraying Hillary Clinton as a puppet of corporate lobbyists. The opposite dynamic defined the 2020 primary as the healthcare industry ran ads vilifying Bernie's signature Medicare for All plan and as a super PAC aired ads suggesting Bernie couldn't win a general election. The tyranny of decorum dominated the candidate discourse. Anytime Bernie so much as made a passing mention of one of Biden's bad votes, there were overwrought accusations that Bernie was going negative, hand-wringing warnings about the perils of going negative, with Team Biden shedding crocodile tears about negative attacks. This transparent bullshit soon became attacks on staffers who dared to point out flaws in Biden's record. Turner and Press Secretary Brianna Gray were routinely demonized on social media, and I myself was labeled a toxic attack dog for the high crime of periodically tweeting links to Biden's speeches in the congressional record. This attempt to scandalize policy criticism supposedly reflected heightened concerns about electability, the idea promoted by Democratic politicians and pundits being that sharp contrast might weaken the eventual Democratic nominee against the existential threat of Trump. And yet, history argues exactly the opposite. Tough but brutal primaries often end up battle-testing nominees and making them stronger. See President Barack Obama. In the same way the minor leagues can prepare players for the major leagues, Brutal intra-party contests subject the eventual standard-bearers to training, and they also suss out potential weaknesses at an early point when a party can still make a different nomination choice. By contrast, primaries dominated by demands for, quote, good decorum, unity, and decency create coronations. And coronations run the risk of creating nominees who are not adequately road-tested and who are only publicly vetted in the high-stakes general election well after the party could have made a different choice. That is where we are now. The tyranny of decorum has given us a presumptive nominee whose record hasn't been well scrutinized or challenged. Now, it's true Democrats' cries of you're being too negative and all the overdramatic fainting spells about tweets to C-SPAN videos did work in the primary. The tactic successfully scandalized any legitimate scrutiny of Biden's record to the point where mild criticism of specific votes was instantly depicted as substance-free controversy about tone. But those same cheap tactics, the screaming about negativity, 
the whining, the fainting spells, are not going to work when Donald Trump spends a billion dollars on negative ads, hammering Biden's votes for NAFTA and the bankruptcy bill. Votes that Biden could have been better prepared to deal with had they been litigated in the primary. He may still be able to defeat Trump, and I've said I hope he does. But the comparatively soft primary did not strengthen him for the general election. Looking ahead beyond 2020, we can't allow this stifling worship of decorum to define Democrats' political culture. We must remember that intraparty contrast is good in primaries. Hillary bashing Obama was good. Obama bashing Hillary was good. The same goes for down-ballot races. Ned Lamont running a tough primary against Joe Lieberman was good. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ending Joe Crowley's political career was good. The 2020 primary was pleasant, civil, and polite. And that's bad. We're in the midst of unpleasant, uncivil, and impolite emergencies that threaten our country and our planet. A global pandemic won't be stopped by niceties. The corporations profiting off the health care crisis won't be thwarted with good manners. The fossil fuel giants intensifying the climate cataclysm won't be deterred by gentility. And elections will not be won by prioritizing good decorum over everything else. In short, preventing a real contrast and a real conflict over ideas only serves the establishment and its politicians who know that scrutiny will weaken their power to decide nomination contests and control the future. But winning nomination contests without real vetting not only serves corporate power, it also jeopardizes that much-vaunted quality that parties claim to care so much about. General election. Electability. And lastly, here is a short piece from the Socialist Party USA. If we have learned one thing from Bernie Sanders' two presidential campaigns, it is that radical politics cannot be advanced from within the Democratic Party. This is not a criticism of the hard work done by countless volunteers on the Sanders campaign, but an indictment on a party that will do everything up to and including rigging its own presidential primaries to prevent meaningful change. For many, Senator Sanders' loss in the presidential primary is still raw, and deciding your next political step may take time. For others, you may be ready now to continue advocating for radical solutions in the 2020 election. Wherever you find yourself at this moment, do not give in to the hopelessness and defeatism being sold by the Democratic Party in the form of their candidate, Joe Biden. As was the case in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, radical alternatives do exist to the unpopular neoliberal being peddled under the guise of, quote, anyone but Trump, and vote blue no matter who. The Democrats want to lay the blame for Donald Trump's victory at your feet if you do not support the Democratic nominee chosen by their selection, by their section of the ruling class. Do not let them. Instead, turn yourself to the future. 
Now is the time to abandon the Democratic Party for good. Not just for another four years. Some will attempt to corral you now into supporting Joe Biden, whereas others will wait to win you back with a 2024 progressive candidate like Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. So long as these campaigns exist within the framework of the capitalist two-party system, progress will not be possible and your hard work will be in vain. The capitalist parties exist to advance the interests of the ruling class. The working class must organize independently in order to advance its own interests. For our part, the Socialist Party has signed on to a dynamic presidential campaign by nominating longtime member and organizer Howie Hawkins of New York. Howie's campaign is one of left collaboration, which is why he is also seeking the nomination of the Green Party, as well as support from across the left. We are proud to be involved in this unprecedented unity campaign and excited for what it can achieve for independent left politics in the United States. You can learn more about the Howie Hawkins 2020 presidential campaign at HowieHawkins.us. We encourage anyone interested in becoming involved in independent left policies to read our Socialist Party U.S. Statement of Principles, which describes the core beliefs of our party that all members subscribe to within our multi-tendency organization. If you believe in our principles and are ready to become involved in socialist politics that are opposed to the Democratic Party instead of beholden to it, apply to join the Socialist Party today. And that'll wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. You can uh, send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can check out all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. Here is Billy Bragg with the song Upfield. Thanks for listening.
so 